and a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick waded into the waters off of Catalina Island. Her intent that morning was to swim from Catalina to the California coast. Long distance swimming was not new to Florence. During the previous 12 months, she had swung, swum the English Channel twice in both directions, setting new records as she did so. But on this July morning, the waters were so cold off Catalina that it numbed Florence to her very bones. And then there was the fog. The fog, it was so thick you could hardly see the boats that surrounded her as she made her way to the other side. As she began her efforts, her boatmen had to drive off the sharks with rifle fire. Florence gave it her best effort that day, swimming for more than 15 hours, when finally exhausted and with no hope of making the California coast, she asked her boatman to take her out of the water. Her trainer encouraged her to keep swimming, believing that they were very near to land. But because of the fog, because of the cold, because she was weary, looking for any sight of land that she could see and seeing none, she decided to quit one half mile from her goal. She told the reporters once stepping upon shore, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have just seen the land, I might have made it all the way. You see, it wasn't really the cold that defeated Florence Chadwick that morning. It was the fear of the cold that caused her to throw in the town towel from exhaustion. It was not only the cold, though, or the fear that was really the enemy to Florence Chadwick. It was the fog. It was the fact that she could not see the goal. She could not see the end. You know, we are not defeated necessarily because of the fear that comes into our lives, the challenges that come our way, the unpleasant circumstances that each of us face. We are not defeated necessarily by the spiritual battle or the enemies that we face in the everyday living of life. What really defeats us is the fog. What really defeats us is by losing sight of the finish line. We're surrounded by our boatmen, our encouragers, our spiritual helpers, and yet even when they encourage us, implore us, exhort us to continue on, we often quit and suffer defeat. We do not experience the abundant life God has for us. Paul, in our text, in the book of Philippians, exhorts us to press on, press on towards the goal. Well, we often quit. But let me tell you the rest of the story about Florence Chadwick. Though she failed in her first attempt, just two months later, she stepped off that very same Catalina beach, swam the full distance of the channel, and in the process set a new speed record for the crossing. So what was the difference between that July 4th morning and this morning two months later? There was no fog. There was no nothing clouding her vision of the goal line. The day was beautiful. The sun was out, and she could see the other shore. James, the Lord's little brother, tells us in his letter this. We do not know what our life will be like tomorrow. Life says is like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
You know, sometimes that's really the problem, isn't it? We are afraid of living the Christian life, of the spiritual life, because of the fog that envelops us. There seems to be a vapor that surrounds us in time, at times and just paralyzes our lives. At first blush, we begin the Christian life with great expectations, like a house on fire. We say, damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead in this life that God has given to us. We attack the spiritual life with zeal and all the energy that we can muster. We set tremendous goals for ourselves. We're going to win the world to Christ. We even believe naively, some would say, that we could actually do that. Win the world to Christ. But that, then that infernal fog rolls into our lives and we find ourselves adrift, all alone. No matter how we try, we just can't see where we're going. All those passionate goals that we dreamed about are set off into hopelessness in the fog. Then we even begin to question self and God. How can I really enjoy life when I don't understand today? When I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and I really don't even know if there will be a future. We begin to question ourselves and God. We fail to live the abundant life that God desires that we walk in and live by faith. Let me demonstrate this to you by a silly illustration. If you are in the middle of a dense cloud break, a cloud bank of fog, what can you see? Nothing. Maybe you've been there. One Vermont morning, I can remember driving down I-90 to Boston, and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Well, some of us enter into those days of our lives, even though we're saved. A fog envelops us. We can't see much of anything. We start off well, but we're looking for the beachhead that we cannot see. The salvation experience that we have enjoyed takes a back seat. The thrill of conquering different challenges in life that God will bring our way are set aside. We know that the Spirit of God is there to drive off the sharks in the water. We know that the boatmen surround us. They're encouraging us to continue on to the end. We know that the trainer, the Word of God, exhorts us to do so. But as we see the fog roll in and envelop us, we tend to quit. We lose our joy. The abundant life is deserted. The joy and the wonder of the trip now become a burden. We end up just going through the motions, one stroke after another, one kick after another, not being able to see the shoreline, and we just give in. We quit. Our joy is gone. Now the question for us this morning, if that is the place that we find ourselves in, is this. How do I find the joy of my salvation again? How do I see the other side? Can I see through that fog that has enveloped my life? Can I get and return to the joy of my salvation, as David talks about? I believe the answer is quite simple and assured. The answer is yes, you can. You can really rediscover the joy that Paul speaks of in the book of Philippians. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 21 of that chapter. If you need to use one of our few Bibles, 
It's found on page 1,164, somewhere in that area close. And if you've been here with us for the past few weeks or months, you will recall that in chapter 1, Paul shared his life's goal, his one goal in life, the shore that he was aiming for, the focus of all that he did was this, that he would arrive in heaven safely, that he would live for Christ in this world and then arrive safely on the other side. Paul states that his goal is living for Christ in the here and now. Living for Christ. For me to live is Christ, he writes in verse 21 of chapter 1. You know, there are a lot of things we can live for today. There's a lot of attention that we could be placing in other areas of our lives. We could get bogged down in the fog of materialism, in the, the midst of good work. We could get confused on which path to take by the many choices that are there for us. But Paul says this, his one goal in life is to live for Christ. For me to live is Christ. For Christ to live in and through him is his goal. What are you living for today? What has taken your attention away from the shoreline? What fog do you find yourself in this morning? Is it your job, your recreational time? Maybe even such good things as your family are occupying your attentions instead of your Lord. What's more important to you, your retirement years, planning for it and experiencing it and living it, or fleshing out Jesus Christ in your life? Paul's goal and motto was, for me to live is Christ, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice. Now in chapter 2, we see that Paul comments on this life goal this living for Christ in chapter 2. It's a life that he says we should pattern after. He gives Christ as the example, the mold, the pattern that we should live by, saying that we should emulate Jesus Christ. Jesus served sacrificially and humbly, Paul tells us in chapter 2, and in doing so, our Savior found great joy. This chapter reveals that Jesus gave up the splendor of heaven, the presence of and fellowship of his Father to voluntarily come to this place and to put on human flesh, offering himself up as a ransom for many. Jesus gave up all that there was in heaven to come down humbly and to serve you and I. That should be the way that we flesh out the life that we live. For me to live as Christ, for me to live humbly and sacrificially in the pattern of Jesus Christ by serving him. What's your purpose in living? Is it to serve Christ this morning? Is it to serve God in a humble and selfless manner as the Lord Jesus Christ showed us? Let me tell you, these are clear-cut and definable goals. This is the shoreline that you and I can shoot for. We can move away the fog. We can get through it and see it if we have a definable goal. Paul says that goal is to live for Christ, to be a servant like our Savior was. What is your goal this morning? Is your overriding goal in life to do the will of God? The will of God is for you to live for Christ, to serve Him. Now moving on to chapter 3, will you notice that these goals of living for Christ and living as Christ lived become a lifelong pursuit. 
In Paul's terminology, we are to continue to press on, to press on towards the prize. In chapter 3 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul declares this, I press on towards the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To press on towards that upward call. A few years ago, in the Olympics, there was a, a, a diminutive young lady who was one of those gymnasts. You'll probably remember her, four feet, eight inches tall. And she turned out to be the surprise of the Olympics that year. But as she competed in the final team event, I think it was the vault, she so badly sprained her ankle on her first vault that she didn't know if she could go on. The team's goal, destiny of winning the gold medal, rode upon her ability to make one more vault. But her ankle was so bad, it swelled. She could hardly walk on it. But then the television cameras focused upon her as she ran down the runway, as she leaped into the air, left into the air, she vaulted and tumbled and came down and landed perfectly for just a second, just long enough to complete her jump. And then she crumpled to the floor. A capacity crowd rose and cheered yelled her name, her coach ran to her as she threw her arms around his neck. And then she stood with pride upon the medal stand, overcoming the challenge that was given to her. Kelly Strug's first try was a slip and a fall and a terrible injury, a severe sprain. She asked her coach if she could quit, if she could quit short of the goal, but he said, no, let me encourage you to go on. Do it. You can do it. And she chose for herself to do that. She later on said that she whispered a prayer to God as she ran down that runway to achieve her goal by winning the gold medal for her team. Let me ask you this morning, are you pressing on with that same determination? Are you pressing on in your Christian life with the zeal that Kelly Strug showed to win a lousy gold medal at the Olympics? Just think of the rewards that lie for you in heaven. Press on in this life, despite the challenges, despite the hurts and circumstances that come our way. For me to live is Christ. To live humbly with a servant like attitude as our Lord Jesus, despite the pain that comes our way. Clear away the fog that is before you this morning and see the goal line. See the shore that lies ahead finishing well for Jesus Christ, serving him in this life for me to live is Christ. Well, if you will concentrate on finishing well for Jesus Christ, then you will be able to joy abundantly and share abundantly Christ with others. Sharing Christ is the byproduct of living the Christian life. The book of Philippians is chock full of assurance for us. We see that assurance in chapter 1 and verse 6 when Paul assures the individual believer, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it on the day of Jesus Christ. A few lines down in that same chapter in verse 12, he continues that theme saying this, I want you to know, my brethren, that my circumstances, that is, being in jail in Rome, have turned out for the greater progress 
of the gospel. No matter what circumstances come into your life, whether you're in jail or free, God is in control. He wants you to live the abundant life, sharing Christ. And that's exactly what Paul did. As he got closer to the finish line, his enthusiasm for sharing Christ got better, got, got more abundant. We learn from the book of Philippians and from the book of Romans that Paul shared it freely with all the guards, with all the household of Caesar, and many of them came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he did this joyfully, humbly, in the midst of servitude, in the midst of prison. Do you know how many verses there are in the book of Philippians? 104. And yet, it's written from a jail cell. And Paul writes that with joy. With joy. Now, many people have committed the book of Philippians to heart because of its encouragement to the believer. But as we come to the end of this book, and all good things must come to end, even the book of Philippians is going to come to an end, I would like you to say, or I would like you to see, I should say, as we come to an end and a close of this book, that Paul says farewell to his friends. And it is though he is writing a tearful goodbye to us at Lacey Chapel. Like the swimmer, Florence Chadwick, we can quit just short of the finish line, or we can continue on to the end. And Paul encourages, Paul encourages the believers at Philippians not to fall short, but to continue on, to keep their eye on the prize, to press on towards the goal in their spirit, to become spiritually mature, to make Christ the center of their life, to never take their eye off the prize. So would you, as we come to the conclusion, to the conclusion of this book, turn with me to chapter 4. Let me remind you that there is joy in living for Christ. There is joy in serving Christ. And there is joy in sharing Christ. But there is also joy, as we learn in this chapter, in resting in Christ. Joy in resting in Christ. Now, I personally don't worry or fret about reaching the goal. And I'm sure there are many amongst our group this morning who are confident that Christ will get us there and you there. How great is your confidence this morning in the Lord Jesus? Is your motto this morning, I'm living for Christ? Is your desire this morning to serve Him and to share Him? Then you can also rest in Him, as chapter 4 tells us. Do you know why you can rest in the Lord Jesus Christ? You don't have to fret about your sharing or serving, but you can simply rest in Him because He supplies all of our needs. God supplies all of our needs. How does He do that? Verse 19 of chapter 4 tells us. And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. This well-known verse, this oft-memorized verse is probably the most famous of verses in the book of Philippians. It might also be the most misunderstood verse of all in the book of Philippians. What does it mean that God shall supply my need? I know I talked about that last time, but it doesn't mean that God's going to supply all of our wants. He's going to supply all of our needs, not all of our greeds. Now, obviously, God will meet our needs if he promises to do so. 
But he extended this promise to the Philippians. What did it mean in particular to the Philippians? Well, Paul's needs were being supplied by the Philippians. Paul's needs, as you know from our last time together in this book, were being graciously supplied by the Philippians who sent a donation of money to the uh, city of Rome where Paul was at in jail. And he used that money to supply all his needs as far as food and clothing and the basic essentials of life under house arrest. So in Paul writing the Philippians saying that he, God, would supply all of their needs, it was so abundant that that need, that that supply overflowed into the life of Paul. Let me ask you this morning, is God supplying your needs? Is he meeting the needs of your life? Do you have a pressing need today, one that you cannot meet out of your own strength, out of your own energy, out of your own efforts? Is there some need in your life that you just can't fulfill? Well, let me assure you that God will fulfill your needs. He will take care of you. He's got all the riches and glory that he can supply your needs out of. Your needs, not your griefs. Now, Paul closes this epistle with one of the traditional doxologies that we often hear at the end of a sermon. In a doxology, we give praise to God. We acknowledge who He is and what He is doing in our life, and we glorify Him. And that's exactly what Paul does. We should glorify God for meeting our needs, for supplying all of our needs. And in verse 20, we see that Paul does that. He glorifies God. Now, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It is because of who God is that we should glorify Him. It is because of His character that we should glorify Him. It is because of His exalted position that He deserves the glory and the praise of mankind. The word that's used here is an interesting one. It's the Greek word daxa. And etymologically, it's a tough word to say, etymologically, it's uh, the English word doxology is derived from the Latin. And it means to supply fame or renown or honor to another. To supply fame, honor, or renown to another. When we glorify God, we praise Him for who He is. We pray him for, praise Him and laud Him for what He has done in our lives. God is great. God is wonderful. God is worthy to be praised because He's changed me. Because the Word of God has changed me. Because the Holy Spirit has come into my life and changed me. I am no longer just a sinner, but I am now a saint because of God's work in my life. Now to our God and Father be glory for what He's done in my life, for what He's done in this world, for who He is forever and ever. Amen. You know that forever and ever is a long time, don't you think? I remember when I was in high school, I thought those four years were never going to end. And then I went to the Navy for four years, and I thought that was never going to end. Then I went to seminary for five years, and I thought that was an eternity. And now I look back, and I wonder, where did all those years go? Man, they seem so short. You know how long eternity is? Forever and ever. That's not just a phrase that Paul chooses to tack on the end here to sort of sound religious. This tells us something about who God is. 
His glory will last from age to age, from the Alpha to the Omega, from the beginning to the end. We are to praise Him. Well, forever and ever. He deserves it. Do you want to praise God forever and ever? What, what was that? Amen. That's exactly what Paul finishes with here. You know what amen means? That means I'm in total agreement with you. I'm in agreement. That's what amen means. Let us praise God forever and ever. Amen. We are in agreement with that because of what God has done in our life. Now in verse 21, we find Paul connecting with other saints. He glorifies God by exchanging greetings with other saints. He's praising God by doing this. He's connecting with other people. Notice in verse 21. Part of our praise and worship is how we interact with other people. Part of how I am living for Christ, for me to live as Christ, is how I treat other people. Now notice in verse 21, Paul writes, greet every saint. Every saint, not just the ones you like. Every saint, not just the ones you had good experiences with. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me also greet you. You know, there's a special bond that exists between Christians, whether they're from Ethiopia, South Korea, or Chicago. There's a special bond that exists between people because we know Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what race you are, what ethnicity you are, what team you root for. There's a special bond between Christians. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. What is that bond? We're family. We're family. It doesn't matter whether you're black and white, yellow or green or purple or whatever. We're family, brothers and sisters for eternity. We should be connecting with one another. That's one of the things that attracted me to Lacey Chapel when they offered the pastor here was the ethnicity of our church that differing people could come together. You know, the, the people where there's the, 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 the greatest differences and the greatest commonalities is the church. The world's obsessed with diversity. The family of God is diverse, but we have the most common thing of all together. Christ. Christ. Jesus Christ connects each and every one of us together forever and ever. Amen? Amen. We are not only connected with the saved, says Paul, because of who God is, because of our goal and pursuit in life, to have Christ as the center of it, but we're connected with the lost. I'm talking about people who don't know Christ. I'm talking about those who are without salvation, who have one destiny, hell. We're still connected with these people. Paul has just greeted the saints. But he's also concerned and connected with the lost. Look with me at verse 22. You'll remember, no Roman was supposed to worship any god besides Caesar. No Roman was supposed to bow down to any god other than the Roman emperor. Look at me at verse 22. And all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The word of God is so powerful. The testimony of Paul was so great that it infected the emperor's own household. Like a worm in your computer, the gospel gets in there. 
Paul was connected and concerned about the lost. Let me ask you this morning, how concerned are you about lost people? We live in a diverse age. We live in an age where, where there's a multiplicity of voices out there. There's all sorts of voices wanting their attention. There are those who want their 15 minutes of fame. Whether it's the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witnesses or those weird people over there in Yelm. Whoever it is, everybody wants to be heard. We're competing in a place, in a marketplace like there has never existed before. At one time, Christianity was the lone voice in America, but now we've got competition. It was the same thing in Paul's day. Much hasn't changed. In Greece, there was a temple that had shrines to 350 gods. The emperor narrowed that down to one himself. But there was competition. The gospel is powerful, and no matter what authority, what government, what threat or regulation comes against it, it will go on. Jesus promised that his word will not go void. There will be people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue will be represented in the millennial kingdom. We should have a concern for the lost. We should have a concern for the saved. We should be connected with each of these. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And neither did the walls of the palace in Rome. The gospel invaded it. And even Roman centurions, the people that Paul was tied up to, the, the Roman guards that he was shackled to, got saved. Some of them came to know Christ. I'm sure Paul got a couple of black eyes in the process as he shared Christ. I'm sure he took his lumps. The gospel message went forth because Paul was connected with the lost. Paul was not only connected with the saved, Paul was not only connected with the lost, but Paul was connected with grace. Paul was connected with saving grace. Look with me at verse 23. May the grace... It's not may the works. It's not may the repentance. It's not the may the anything else. It's may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the grace, the unmerited favor of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, grace is not about changing the outside of man. Grace is not changing the visible manifestations of your life. It might have impact there, for sure. But grace is about changing the inner man. Look, be with your spirit. Not with your works. Not with your Bible reading or your prayer life. It's with your spirit. Now, all those things definitely should be impacted by the grace of God. But the grace of God is about changing the inner man, the soul, the spirit, the heart of the individual while law, the law came through Moses, grace, grace came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember Paul? If there was a man who could be self-assured about who he was, it was Paul. A Hebrew of Hebrews. A Pharisee. Studying with the greatest minds in intelligentsia of his day. Paul was a Jew's Jew. 
And then on the road to Damascus, he ran into the grace of God. Paul, Paul, yes, Lord, why do you persecute me? It's the grace of God that changed his life from a legalistic mindset of doing things just right in order to be saved to one that relied totally on the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of God. It's the grace that changed Paul from a persecutor of the church to a builder up of the church. It was the grace of God that Paul came to know the forgiveness of God instead of the works of God. The question I began with this morning as we started was, how can I get back the joy of my salvation? How can I experience the abundant life, if you will, if I'm lost in that fog, if I'm lost in life, and have lost sight of that, the goals, and realize that biblical truth who you are in Christ. Realize the biblical truth of who you are and at the greatest resource that is available to you, the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. Attitude can make all the difference in the world. I can reach the other side. I can finish well because of God's grace. It's changed who I am, my very soul, and spirit. You know, attitude can make all the difference in the world, and airplanes have attitude. Did you know that? In airplane technological talk, airplanes have an attitude indicator. Did you know that? It depends on where your nose is pointed. If it's pointed up, you have a high nose attitude. I've known some people like that before. That means you're climbing. If you have a low nose attitude, that means you're going down. I've known people like that, too. We're to have a high nose attitude, climbing and moving forward in our spiritual lives. Attitude makes all the difference in the world. What's your attitude this morning? Is it the grace of God that's giving you a high nose attitude? I trust it is. Listen to these words of Paul. I think they're great. From the book of Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. As always, Paul looks to Christ for the perfect example that we are to follow. Let me ask you, what's your attitude indicator this morning? Is it pointing to Christ for me to live as Christ? Is it serving humbly? Is it sharing Christ with the lost and with the saved? I trust it is. If it is, you will have a high nose attitude. And you'll reach the other side. You'll get through the haze and the fog of this life, the difficulties of life, the difficult circumstances, the broken hip bones, the bee stings, having to go and have your blood changed three times a week. You'll get through those times if you have a high nose attitude and you'll reach the other side. And God will honor you for your faithfulness. Press on. Press on. Press on to the finish line. Let us pray.